fighting spirit. I love it. Yeah, let's go TBF. What did we have TBE before? You know, you know, we, 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 we TBF. Throwback fighters. Let that one ring bells, let it marinate. That's what we're coming with now. Throwback fighters, 2201, second to no one. sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me, you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am, let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. Shut that soft ass shit up. All that soft talking. I know you can do it, man. You got the, you got the, let's shut that soft ass shit up. Man. So you ain't with me. When I fought Hatton, I knocked Hatton out with 10 hours gloves on. Stepping back when he was undefeated. What's good, everyone? Back at it again. Um, Hopefully it hasn't been too long, but welcome back to the number one podcast in a sport that's so bad we've had to get Mayweather back to rescue us, and I don't even think he can do it this time. Now, if I think a lot of you guys, you, you would have seen either the highlights or the card from Saturday night, the DAZN card that Eddie put on, so Chisora versus Pulev, and it's weird. Um, obviously the previous episode I did where are we from a from a business perspective in terms of boxing part two I want to talk about the people who actually do the entertaining right the guys in the ring so we'll we'll dive deeper into that as this episode develops and the reason is Saturday just reminded me that we're not very good at this boxing thing we're really good at supporting boxing and we're really good at making boxers millionaires in this country. But as a nation, we're not very good at this boxing thing. And we need to get to the root causes of why. Because I don't think we will fix it anytime soon. But if you're a promoter, for example, do you really care? Do you care if you can wheel out a 38, 39-year-old Chisora and a 41-year-old? Um, surely Pule's older than that, right? But Pule's over 40. So combined age of over 80 years old and we're wheeling that out as a main event at the O2 and it's doing better numbers. Let me say this again. It's doing better numbers than any other kind of up and coming level versus level fight. I imagine that grossed more than Richards versus Boatsy did. Grossed more than a Cody Chamberlain. And I can't wrap my head around why. But then... I don't think boxing fans know what they want. And I think that's that's the root cause of it. And I'll do an episode on that at some point. But it was it was horrible to watch. You could see Derek was shot. All he had was that big bowling right hand. Pulev's clearly done. I haven't seen anyone since um like some keep fitters or some beginners where you're literally throwing punches forward while leaning all your weight back so you don't actually hurt anyone, literally trying not to break the egg. And it looked like Pulev was going easy on Derek. And like they almost said, we'll just talk our way through this fight and entertain anyone. Because anyone who's seen sparring will tell you that was that was like low-intensity sparring. And that's why you saw those guys laughing and joking afterwards because they didn't do anything to each other. Pulev's face was all right apart from the cut. Chisora looked okay and you're like... That's not what a main event at the O2 is supposed to be. It's supposed to be memorable, but that's a fight you're never going to remember. And Eddie's happy because he did his numbers. And he's probably delivered for DAZN, what, 
they asked him to do. Meanwhile, we're the fans were sat here going, how bad is the rest of British boxing that someone can justify having a 38-year-old man boxing? How has no one retired both of these men? How, how have we had it where we've had Joe Joyce, Philip Hergovich, Martin Bacconi, and the list goes on, of up-and-coming heavyweights and none of them have managed to destroy those two men in the ring? And when you strip it down, the, the honest answer is what we have right now in the stable isn't very good. It's not very good. It's a poor standard. It's poor quality. And as long as the standard keeps dropping, guys like Chisora will have as many fights as they want. And I think it's the same for Fury. It'll be the same for Dillian. Anyone over 33, 34 now can have a career for as long as they want because it's new generation don't have it in them to retire you. And this has been going on for a long time, actually. I think you can sort of draw the cutoff point at the kind of the, the tail end of that Froch era and sort of when DeGale stopped and when George stopped, but probably a couple of years before that. So I think anything after 2016 will be underwhelming. Now that's probably the cutoff point. Realistically, 20... Yeah, end of 2016, because that's after Frampton beat Santa Cruz and everything started to go a bit south for, for our elite British champions. But go back a few years. Do you remember? And it was all in the papers. It was all in the media and every promoter worth their salt was talking about this. We had 13 or 14 world champions. Do you remember that? 13 or 14 world champions. And we were like, yeah, British boxing's booming. And Eddie Hearn was talking. This would have been the end of 2016. Eddie was talking about Britain is where boxing happens now. You want to make money? You want to earn with Hearn? You've got to do it in Britain. Fast forward six years, you've got to do it in Saudi. So what went wrong? What went wrong? How, how have we ended up like this? And if you look at it critically, actually, of those world champions, how many were world British champions and how many were legitimate world champions? And for me, a legitimate world champion is classed as simply this. A guy who went in with consensus picks as top four, top five in their weight class and won. So someone who's easy to put in that box is Carl Froch. Right? Whatever people want to say, Carl Froch, he, he has he has names of that quality. I'd put Butte at that level. I'd put Ward at that level. I'd definitely put Jermaine Taylor at that level. There's a debate about where Abraham would fit. Probably not at 168, more at 160. Uh, there's also a question over whether you'd put Durrell at that level. But at the time, I think you would have put Durrell at that level. Um, just his pedigree up until that point would suggest that he was a consensus pick as one of the top five super middleweights at the time. And Carl dusted a lot of those guys, even Pascal. Does Pascal qualify? Probably not at that time, but we've seen what he's gone on to become. So you look at that and you go, okay. Carl, Carl was a world champion that did it the right way. I know this is going to make Porky's day to hear this, so he makes sure he does hear this. But Carl did it the right way. Someone who did it in a similar way, but maybe a bit bumpier, Amir Khan too. Yeah, he took apart a live Devin Alexander. He took apart a live Marcus Maidana. So we've had guys who operate at that level. But we've had a lot of guys that didn't. 
Um, I look at the world title run of Lee Haskins. I was happy that he won the belt, by all means. I think he deserved to be a world champion, but it didn't last long. Um, Carl Frampton, what, we, without the Santa Cruz win, we'd have classed him as a, a world British champion. But actually, that Santa Cruz win that he has moves him slightly above that. But he didn't really hang on to much after that, did he? And it was just a rapid decline after that for Carl. So as you're seeing, there's no one who's really, really done it. Like, let's look at James DeGale. Uh, would you say the Durrell win was sizable? No, the Butte win was credible. So you give him that. But then you're scratching around for other meaningful DeGale wins. George Groves probably isn't in that conversation, which isn't being disrespectful. He just doesn't have the quality of wins. Whereas... Maybe Joshua does. You want to give it to Joshua, but then you realise he got smoked by Ruiz and he got smoked by Usyk, both smaller men. Like, you know, smaller men than Joshua, definitely shorter, that's for sure. And so that's not meant to happen. And then we look at other guys who, who got smoked to that level, Ricky Burns. Who smoked Ricky Burns? Crawford smoked him. Uh, I nearly said Broner smoked him. But Crawford definitely smoked Ricky Burns. I thought Bel Bel Ray Beltran did as well. Indongo, Selvi, all smoked Ricky Burns. So well, what does that say about him at the top? Not all that. At least Selby wasn't all that either because he got smoked by people we didn't think he'd get smoked by. Warrington, for example. And Warrington definitely isn't that elite world level. He's a guy that can win a world title, but he's not a guy who can hold it against all comers. And we saw that. With the Mauricio, with the Mauricio Lara fight, well, in fact, probably both of them because he's getting he's getting crushed in both of them. Don't forget Nathan Cleverly smoked against Kovalev. I think he might have got smoked against Fomfara. Smoked against Jack. Who else was part of that that crew of thirteen? And and people were was praising all of these guys. Kel, I think Kel's unfortunate. I think. There's a sliding doors moment for Kel where he doesn't injure that eye and maybe he goes on to have a reasonable career as a welterweight. But I think beyond that point, it was always going to be hard. And, you know, having to defend against someone who's truly special in Errol Spence probably wasn't the best thing to do as well. And who else got smoked? Cal Yafai smoked. Um, we talked about Groves. Groves getting smoked by Callum Smith. Like, we're building up a picture here of guys where... Yes, we're really good at getting people in position to fight for a world title. By all means, yeah. Because sanctioning bodies love being in the UK. It's a great place to come for a fight. But we don't produce champions that have longevity. Like Carl Froch did. Like Amir Khan probably could have done. If he had probably made better lifestyle choices. And we don't breathe that longevity i'm going to put fury in the category of longevity because we can all imagine him holding any belt he wants for as long as he wants right now so in light of that absolute horror show of names and and shattered dreams and unfulfilled potential and you know fans being permanently disappointed you know, let's zero in again and let's say how do we produce more people like Tyson Fury? Why haven't we done it before? Why is it that we struggle to produce guys like Tyson Fury who are good enough to hold their own at world level against absolutely everyone?
So the question I have for all the trainers I know, and I, I say this in conversations, I go, why can't we build these stable champions? What is it that's going wrong in the process? Like, it's, it's like we're making bread and it's just not rising in the oven and everyone else's bread seems to be rising. So we're just there with these flaccid loaves going, yeah, you know, we're not, we're not very good at this, are we? Yet we're almost too arrogant to get any better. So I still try and figure out what the hell's gone wrong with British boxing where we can't produce the Amir Khans, the Carl Frotches, the Tyson Furies. And I'm going to go back and, and pick another example because he held the belt for three years, Clinton Woods. Once again, doesn't get enough respect in boxing. I am surprised that we have this many light heavyweights. Craig Richards, Dan Aziz, Dex Bellman, Hosea Burton. The list goes on. We have all of these light heavyweights and no one ever goes to Clinton Woods and says, mate, what does it take to be world level? What does it take to be elite? And we're asking you, Mr. Woods, because you shared a ring with Roy Jones. Was it twice? You shared a ring with Antonio Tarver. That might have been twice too. You shared a ring three times with Glenkoff Johnson. At British level, you went to war with Crawford Ashley. You've seen everything in boxing. And not one light heavyweight has made that trip up to Sheffield to sit down and have some food with Clinton Woods and say, can I pick your brain? That's part of the reason. That's a big part of the reason why none of these guys will get to that level. Because you're not talking to the people who have been there. Whereas you get the impression with American kids, they have these guys in their ear all the time. But we have to stick up and we have to defend British boxing in some sense because the missing piece can't be down to effort these kids are training every day these kids are getting up in the morning and they're doing what's being asked of them by the way be clear about this doing what's being asked of them it's not the muscles on their frames because these guys are lifting they've got strength and conditioning guys you're seeing these guys doing hill sprints and whatnot they're, they're, they're active they're doing stuff it can't be knowledge because in the sport of boxing there are no secrets anymore there's nothing that you can't figure out. There's nothing you can't find out. There's nothing you can't contact someone to get an answer for. Is it mental toughness, resilience? No. There are kids from tough backgrounds here. There are kids from good backgrounds here. And it's the same in America. It's the same in Russia. It's the same in Germany. So, so where does it all go wrong? And my theory on this is it goes wrong right at the beginning. It, it, it's, it's, if your foundations are wrong, everything else is off. They're, you can't get past bad foundations. And I always break it down into two categories, right? Who walks into your gym and who holds the pads? Now, I've sat on all sides of this discussion. I've been a kid walking into a gym. I've been an adult walking into a gym. I've been someone who's had to decide if someone can stay in a gym. I've been turned down by some. I've been accepted by others. I've been around so many gyms in this country. I've had a chance to sit, look, and understand the people they're letting in through their doors. And I always have to spin it back to something I used to say a long time ago. I still say it now. Boxing's a sport mostly populated by insecure men. And so insecure men like things that they can control, where they can feel safe and they don't have to feel afraid or nervous or intimidated. And so they can sit down and they can tell you stories about how they're a tough guy and how they did this and did that. And they love to blow the minds of 
financial directors and hedge fund guys and go, oh my God, these stories are so raw and so visceral and so real. They love doing stuff like that, right? And then they go to government and they go, look at all the work we do keeping kids off the street. And the government aren't smart enough to go, well, if you're taking so many of these bad kids off the street, why are there still so many bad kids on the street? And here's the answer. Most of those bad kids who would benefit from boxing and who would probably be, be good at boxing are very rarely allowed to stay at boxing clubs. This is something no one talks about. Dillian White came to Fitzroy Lodge, thanks but no thanks. Olaf Falabi came to Fitzroy Lodge when he was up against it, thanks but no thanks. Are they any different to Javan Young? No. But they're big characters. They're strong characters that know their own mind and they'll impose themselves in whatever environment they find themselves in. And a lot of people find that intimidating. So you find that a lot of kids who would be really good at boxing, a lot of kids who would cross over, the kid who could be the next Mike Tyson, the kid that could be the next Gerald McClellan, is rarely allowed into a boxing club because they don't know how to cope with that. They don't have the strength of character. Now, I've always, opened, I've always operated a principle of an open church. And I take, I've always taken the position that the coaches run the club. However, we've got to prove that we'll prove that, but the coaches run the club. The coaches run the club, they set the moral tone, they set the cultural tone, and then the boxers maintain all of that. It's not my job to maintain it. So you can generally incorporate most people into a group, and I've learned this from years of work and stuff, but a lot of boxing gyms are scared to do that. So you don't get the right raw materials. That, that kid who's six foot four at 13 or six foot four at 15 with some good weight on him, they won't have him in there because he's quite scary. And they can't cope with the teenage outbursts. They don't know how to stay calm themselves because they're insecure. They don't understand their role in these interactions. So you never get the, the creme de la creme. And some of those guys end up doing MMA and end up being brilliant at MMA. You look at someone like Conor McGregor and you go, how the hell did boxing miss Conor McGregor? So all of these things are important because if you don't get the right raw materials in, you're on a hiding to nothing. The thing you need, and I'll go back to what Greg Hackett said, you need kids who are comfortable having a fight. Because you can't teach that. I can teach you how to box. I can teach you how to win. I can't teach you how to fight. You've either got that in you or you haven't. And a lot of times you're having to teach kids how to fight when they walk into the gym. And so that's what slows development down. So you lose a lot of key years because you're having to teach stuff that other people don't have to teach. The Americans don't have to teach that. You, you get some, some crazy kids walking into gyms in New York. You get some crazy kids walking into Philly gyms, LA gyms, some real crazy kids. We don't here. We don't. That's why you don't hear any scandal involving these boxers. There's nothing serious now. But you go back a few years. <laughs> I mean, you had people like the craze boxing for Repton. You wouldn't have that now. Because this era of boxing coach is softer. 
They get nervous around big characters and strong characters, so you're not going to get the right inputs in. So until we fix the quality of the people coming through the gym, and you've got to do some outreach, and you've got to be a bit more mature about the people you're having, and it's simple. Can this guy here have a fight? Do I believe that this guy has the minerals to be a champion? If so, let him work. But the second and the most important thing, this never gets talked about, and I wish it did because it's unbelievably important. Here's what it is. The best coaches in any boxing club rarely work with the kids. They rarely work with the schoolboys. The schoolboys normally palmed off to some old guy who's probably jaded and cynical about boxing, not enthusiastic at all, not excited about making champions. There are some exceptions. Pinewood Star is a clear example. Uh, I'd say what Charlie Senior and Billy Rumble are doing over at Rumbles is also incredible because they seem to be out all the time. Um, West Ham have a legacy of schoolboy champions, as do Repton, although they've sort of dropped off recently. There are a few clubs where the schoolboys are really important. They almost define the club. But more often than not, the best coaches work with the kids who are going to win the ABAs in your amateur system. That's what happens because it's an ego thing. You want to be the guy that took the kid to GB. You want to be the guy that took the kid to the Olympics. That's who you want to be. And you want to do that as quickly as possible. So starting with an 11-year-old and hoping that by the time they're 20, a lot of people can't be bothered. So what happens is you don't get the best inputs at the time when they're most receptive to the best inputs. So the kids get the, the second-rate coaching. and That's not being disrespectful. It's being honest. In a lot of gyms, the juniors and the schoolboys don't get the quality. So what do you expect is going to happen? Now, here's the contrast. You'll see someone like Patrice Harris over at the Bald Eagle training facility in Washington, D.C. And Patrice Harris will work with 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds just as easily as he'll work with Javante Davis or Adrian Broner. It's not unusual to see elite level coaches in America working with kids because they understand that if you get it right at that age, it's a lot easier when they're adults. And it's one of the things I actually reflected in my coaching journey that at some point I have to start coaching schoolboys because that's when you get your ideas in. That's when you get the mindset right. That's when you help someone truly understand boxing. And then everything after that's just incremental development. Whereas where we are right now, you get half-hearted kids going through the system in most clubs. They're exceptions. I said like Pinewood and so on and so forth. But you mostly get half-hearted kids go through the system till they get to about year 10, year 11. And then it just comes out of nowhere, like this intensity shift of being able to lark around with your schoolmates and then one day you're in with the senior lads and you're like, oh my God, I'm not prepared for this because the guy that's been training you for years hasn't imposed the right standards. And that's partly having unified standards in a club. It's also about other things, but that's one of the problems. It's like you don't get the quality if you don't put quality coaches around the kids. It's as simple as that. But most coaches see doing the kids as the more junior responsibility in the club. I believe it's the most important. But so let's look at these coaches. And I'm going to look at coaches from an amateur and a pro perspective. I can't think of another, another sport 
where you can get to the elite level having done nothing. Not won a single tournament, not produced a single champion, don't even have the knowledge or the respect of your peers. You're not known in the sport, but you can appear out of nowhere and you've got a televised fighter. You're training that guy. To manage in the Premier League, you need that UEFA A license. And that takes, what was that, 18 months at least? And you have to be coaching while you do it. So it already filters out a large number of people. But you can train Anthony Joshua. And all you really have is a reference from Alec Wilkie. But you can still train Anthony Joshua. You've trained nothing in between. Like, not, not a Haringey champion, not an ABA champion, not a schoolboy champion, not a kid that boxed for London Select, not a kid that boxed for England. Nothing. No Four Nations. Nothing. And you can go and train Anthony Joshua. That's mind-blowing. It's absolutely insane, isn't it? I get it. Like a grassroots level, if you go to a rugby club or a football club, someone's dad's probably coaching. And yes, to an extent, he's useless. But it's all for fun down there. But at this level where guys are earning six-figure sums, seven-figure sums, in some cases eight-figure sums, we're leaving it to guys who, who we can't validate or verify. And here's the crazy thing. A lot of your favorite trainers make it up as they go along. Ben Davison makes it up as he goes along. You don't believe me? Try and find Ben Davison having a free-form conversation about boxing and his, his philosophy and vision on boxing. You'll never find it. But here's the paradox. Marcelo Bielsa... I can, get a, I can get a conversation he has about his vision and his philosophy for football. The same with Guardiola. I can get one for Klopp. And you definitely get one for Mourinho. You could even get one for Terry Venables back in the day. In rugby, Eddie Jones will tell you. And what these guys will also tell you is they'll tell you, this is how I want to play. But I have a feeling in a year and a half's time, we're going to revert back to a different style of play. So I'm going to have to review it back then but everything comes from a philosophy a vision of how things should look at their best and then you set up your training and your management around that who in boxing has that joe gallagher does i'll give him his due you know a gallagher fighter if you didn't see joe in the corner you saw a kid you'd be like yeah that's a gallagher fighter got all the elements of a joe gallagher fighter so massive respect for that but generally speaking most of these young guys make it up as they go along because they haven't done their time so you'll hear people talking and it all sounds clever. Like when Ben Davison does those breakdowns, those analyses. Yeah, that's fantastic. But he's had a week to prepare and to sit in front of YouTube and do it. Do that stuff off the top of your head. Break it down in your head. Like that's a skill that takes years to master. And that's why there'll always be a home in a corner somewhere for a guy like Jimmy Tibbs, because he can do that. You know, I think sometimes the... The hero worship is a bit over the top from the East End coaches, 100%. But I get where it comes from. Because there's a guy who, who grafted his way up the ladder. And now I see guys and they're walking their televised fighters down at Wembley and they don't have a clue what they're doing. They're literally learning on the job 
And these boxers are stupid enough to trust someone that's learning on the job. And I'd understand it if there was like a depth of experience of winning. Even if it's just in the amateurs, winning. But you're picking guys up off the street with a, with, with a bit of Instagram buzz? And then boxing fans wonder why your guys aren't any good. They can't be good because here's something that's true. How a boxer fights will reflect the character of the coach more than it will reflect the character of the boxer. I promise you. Anthony Joshua boxes like Robert McCracken did. Just all very structured and very metric based. That's what he does. That's what McCracken did. McCracken was a guy who had to figure out what he had to do to win. Froch was similar, albeit with a completely different chin to Joshua. Let that sink in. A boxer will fight and he will reflect his trainer. Tyson did it with Huey and Peter. You saw, you saw how those styles were kind of neatly aligned. And then he went to Sugar Hill. It was different. Ben Davis, it was different. So you need to choose your trainer wisely. Because that's how you're going to fight. And a lot of guys in Britain fall apart because their trainers just aren't good enough. They're not good enough because, like I said, they come from nowhere. They don't do an apprenticeship. Because even if you do an apprenticeship with a bad trainer, at least you know what not to do. You're halfway there. The art of experience is simply this. The ability to understand what a fighter shouldn't do. And why. That's all experience is. That's why Jimmy Tibbs is valuable. Because he can tell you, mate, I made that mistake in 1984. You don't want to do it because this is what's going to happen. That experience you can't learn on YouTube. That experience you can't buy. You literally have to be around it to learn from it. That's why I learned as much as I did from guys like Mikani. You know what I mean? Adding their Brendan Ingle and all sorts of other coaches I spent time around. And, and everything they taught me was this. You've got to have that vision of how people should box. And I don't think that's there anymore because no one makes reference to it. So all you guys that are training, you're training. You don't even understand why you're training. You don't understand where you're headed. And so you don't know how close you are to your objectives. So I say to every boxer now, if you feel you're just doing activities to stay busy, you don't understand where you're headed, change your trainer right now. Change your trainer. If your trainer doesn't have a philosophy, if the trainer can't talk to you for two minutes about how you should box, how they want you to box, if they cannot be very clear about this, then they don't know what they're doing. Because a lot of these guys are just on YouTube stealing pad routines from this coach and that coach or this country and that country. I can guarantee this. Go to Russia, they can tell you what it takes to win an amateur fight in every weight class, or what, what it takes to win a pro fight in every weight class. They can do that. They have the data. You go to America, they can tell you what it takes to win an amateur fight in a pro fight. In Cuba, they can do the same thing. They can do the same thing in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, India. None of your favorite coaches can do that here. None of them. Because they're not good enough. And this isn't all coaches, but this is that 80% that are really mediocre. And they seem to garner a lot of the attention in the boxing media, even though they don't know what they're talking about. And they're almost getting to places by accident. They just happen to have a freak of a kid who they're training. And then all of a sudden, bang, 
they've ended up with a British title. So let me give you a, a clear example of one of the challenges I have when I talk to coaches, and it's this. Our amateurs right now, and probably our pros as well, they spar too much and they fight too little. Why is that important? Here's why this is really important. And you'll start to see this. Once I mention this, you'll start to see this. After every fight, you should at least know stuff you're not going to do again because it didn't work. Right? So if you go fight, review, fix some stuff in the gym, spar it out, fight it out, and that's a two-week cycle, that's fantastic, right? But if you fight in January and your next fight's not till March, you've just got this whole cycle of sparring people you've been sparring for the last three or four years. Round after round. And you go through the motions. I've seen this. Like this, this happens a lot. Like it, it happened at the lodge where guys just got stale because they figured each other out. And then it was just like a gentleman's agreement of, I won't take you out if you won't take me out. Every so often, they challenge each other and they get a bit heated, which was good. I think every so often... You should try and take each other's heads off. I think that's how you show respect to each other. But guys just got stale. And after the lockdown, that's the reason they didn't come back. They said, oh, training's stale. I can't take accountability for that. I proposed a different course. But as I was there at the time, I have to take ownership for what went wrong. But that's one of the problems you have. Spar too much, fight too little. The fights are where you learn. It's like being examined. You want, you want more exams than you want revision sessions. You just do because it's better to find out what you do know and what you don't know early on and then you can focus on building solutions to that and we don't do enough of that and so that's what harms British boxing in the long run so as you can see by the time these kids get to 17 18 so many things have gone wrong so many things have gone wrong and a lot of regressive practices still happen and this also happens in the pros like they still do these fucking what they call it ton up circuits doesn't really improve strength it doesn't help you all it does is create massive imbalances in your body that then go on to give you injuries as you get older and stronger but those old guys won't won't tell you anything apart from wow dick mctaggart did it and i don't know who's some old guy um henry wharton did it ah. but what people forget is those those guys were a lot more active when they were younger they were physically stronger. A lot of them had jobs before they turned pro. So they were grafting. So they were already strong. So the turn up thing and people say you got stronger from doing that. No, you got stronger from just working. But nowadays these kids play PlayStation and stuff. You need a more structured program to get them to be athletic. Before you can even make them into boxers or get them boxing fit, you got to get them athletically fit. And we don't structure training that way. The Russians do. Yeah, the Bulgarians do. The Americans are getting there a lot quicker than we are. The Cubans definitely do. In fact, the Americans had it right back in the day. Like their simple routines of pull-ups, dibs, push-ups and stuff worked. Because they were able to work the muscles at the front and the back. And we've gone a long way from that. And now, if you look at gyms, it's just bullshit exercises. And all coaches are trying to do is show you how clever they are. And the only people who lose out are the boxers ultimately. So that's, they're the problems in the gyms. The, the, the lack of sparring, interclub sparring rarely happens in London and the Southeast like it used to. I'm sure up north it's a lot better because people tend to be friendlier. 
and the Midlands are probably the same, but round here, no, nah, no interclub sparring, too many egos, too much bad blood between clubs. It's yes, yeah, ridiculous. So you don't you don't get that fresh stimulus into your gym. You don't get that competitive edge that makes sparring just a little bit better, that a little bit more interesting. And it's 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 not looking good because participation's down, general enthusiasm's down, skill levels are down. Like I, I think you could train for six months now and go for the ABAs next year and not do yourself an injustice. That's crazy, right? That's absolutely crazy. And then that points to the elephant in the room that we don't talk about, but it's true. Team GB has become the gift and the curse. It was good because it gave fighters a platform. So if you won a, a medal at the Olympics, for example, you were someone in this country. You know, we, we love people who represent the country. But what happened over time is GB became so almost overly structured, but not in a bad way because their funding's based on medals and they've figured out what it takes to get medals in the Olympics. Only people that can guarantee the medals tend to get selected. And so once we put that overemphasis on GB, it almost meant like if you, if you fell out the GB system, you weren't that good. But what it's also done is it's meant that amateur coaches are obsessed with getting kids into GB because that's your feather, like, yeah, I've made it. And I was one of those coaches until I got someone into GB and I realized they were doing more harm than good. It's no coincidence that so many GB guys leave and then either carry injuries or get injured. How's Ben Whittaker having shoulder reconstructions or whatever he had? How's Fraser Clark having a hand reconstruction? How's this happening so soon? They're meant to have the best of everything up there. Something's clearly going wrong because they're not the only ones carrying injuries. All of these guys that left GB needed six months to a year to let their bodies recover. And you can say it's the Olympics, but other people turn pro sooner. There's something wrong in that GB system that's breaking boxes. No one talks about it, but it's breaking boxes. It's coming at a heavy price if you want to go from the amateurs to the pros. So GB's become that, that curse in that sense that it's encouraging you to coach to a really regressive style because that's what works in the Olympics. But it won't work in the pros. So you almost have to learn one style for GB, then relearn everything for the pros. It's not worth it. So at some point, people just have to accept GB's GB is not that important to us. Like the funding doesn't trickle down if you send kids over to GB. You don't really win out. It's just a feather in your cap. Um, I'd rather have a real-life world champion, if I'm being honest with you. So that's where my ambitions would lie. But uh, let's, let's now start drilling in on the pros because that's really why you guys are here. So the root cause of why our pros aren't very good relative to the elite level, like they're good pros, like they'll win stuff. But to be elite, like multi-year world champions, we're not there yet. And here's the mistake that's made. A lot of these young kids were indoctrinated to this whole Mayweather idea that boxing's a sport of skill.
Boxing is not a sport of skill. Boxing is a work rate sport. Right? Boxing is a work rate sport. And once you establish parity with the work rate, then it's about your physicality. Who's the stronger man in there? Only once you get to that point are you even starting to talk about skill, decision-making, the situation, awareness. You don't get to that point. And that's why you see a lot of these guys. Um, we'll pick Josh Kelly as an example. Josh Kelly looked good against people he was meant to look good against. What happened with Avanesian? Avanesian set a pace Josh Kelly wasn't used to. Avanesian set a pace Josh Kelly hadn't trained for. And because Josh had never had to work that hard in all of his previous wins, he didn't have the capability to match the work rate of Avanesian. Never mind the physicality that Avanesian brings as well. So in the, in the end, his mind gave up on him, his body gave up on him, and that was the end of the fight. And fans fall in love with guys like Josh Kelly because they look like they're skillful. They look like they look like they should be good. And it's not just Josh Kelly. There have been loads over the years. Guys who have looked good. Looked really, really good. Until their work rate and their physicality were tested. And then all of that skill fell apart. Until British boxers understand that this is a work rate sport. Nothing else matters. And one of the root causes of the problem has been pad work. And it links back to what I told you guys earlier. A lot of these coaches are making it up as they go along. They have no philosophy. So not many coaches have you working your feet. Next time you watch someone on the bag, count how many times they move their feet. Then count how many times they actually hit the bag. You should move your feet more than you hit the bag. Because that's what happens in a real fight. You move more than you punch. Whereas you'll see guys... They'll dig their feet into the ground and throw 20-shot combinations. For what? I saw Floyd do it. So if Floyd can do it, I can. No. No. Not many boxers in history can match Mayweather's pace. You're, you're kind of talking about guys like Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard in terms of matching Mayweather's in-fight pace. And these British guys aren't there yet. They're not there. And... It wouldn't be me if I couldn't give you illustrations just to show you what I mean. Let's focus on the light heavyweight division. And I want to take a fight that, that went a number of rounds because you need a representative size to be able to, to speak. Dimitri, not Dimitri before, sorry. Arta Baturbiev versus Marcus Brown. Good fight if you want to watch it. If you look at the first third of that fight, But is probably working at about 190 to 196 effective moves around. And an effective move is just simply anything that makes your opponent react. So just standing in the middle of the ring staring doesn't count. All right. Now Marcus Brown, in response to that, is moving in around 210 effective moves around. So what's that difference? It's about 20. So about 1% difference. But at the top level, man, it's those fine margins. Now you remember, like Marcus Brown's moving between like two, 205 to 250. So it's about 210. So there's about 20 between them, right? 20 effective moves around between them. 
Now, Marcus Brown isn't a 200 type guy. He's probably, because he's had the advantage over so many people for so long, he's probably in the 180s. So he's redlining his actual capability. And that's why you saw him start to flag later in the fight and Baturbiev was able to stay consistent because Baturbiev is the elite light heavyweight right now. We can all agree upon this. And he can do 190 to 200 round after round after round after round. And then he dares you to match that pace. And Marcus Brown couldn't. Joe Smith Jr. couldn't. No one can. You can talk about the skills all you want. It's that pace because all of a sudden everything you did in camp falls apart because you weren't training at that pace in camp. So that 190 to 200 is Baturbiev's sweet spot, right? Effective moves around. So what does that mean for a British guy? Craig Richards, 160 to 170 against Bivol. And that's because Bivol had him working at that pace. You put Craig in against... Someone like an Andre Sterling, it drops down to the 140s, 150s. That pace isn't enough to keep up with a Baturbiev. So how does Craig close that 20 move per round gap? Because that's essentially, what's that? Over 12 rounds, it's 240 moves. That's a whole round's worth of work between them. That's the difference between getting stopped in the 11th or seeing the, seeing the final bell. And that's even before you start thinking about beating the guy. And then I went back and I looked at Dan Aziz versus Hosea Burton, which was what we called an action-packed fight. Dan, Dan clocked in between 160 and 165 per round. Um, there's a gap to close, but for where Dan is, it's fine. But to get to that elite level, Dan's got to find a round and a half's worth of extra work. Hosea Burton, in contrast, was moving at about 140 in that fight. So already he's under pressure because Dan's outworking him. But Dan also had the physical advantages. So you could see Hosea Burton going, I don't have a solution to this. I can't slow his work rate down and I can't overpower him. So all my skill is irrelevant at this point because I've, I've lost the physical battle. I've lost the work rate battle. There's nothing else I can do. I don't have the power to stop him. And so that's what you started to see over the rounds. Jose Burton getting demoralized at the fact that he's having to work at a pace he did not want to work at. So then let's move it down to prospect level. There's a kid called Dexter Macaza out of Liverpool. Probably said his surname wrong. I shouldn't. He's Zimbabwean. I should know better. And he fought Robbie Chapman over the weekend. And so I thought I'd have a look at what Dexter was doing. And Dexter, in a four-round contest, remember, he averaged around 135 effective moves per round. Yeah. yeah. But Terbiev held his number for however many rounds he went with Marcus Brown. 9, 10, I can't remember now. Spider roughly held his for the distance against Bivol. Slowed down a bit towards the end, but definitely longer than four rounds. So you can already see, forget whether you know whether these guys are skillful or not. You can see who's got the advantage, right? Now, if you guys can see that as boxing fans and people who enjoy this podcast, if you can see that, why can't the trainers see this? And if they can see this, why haven't they fixed this? 
There should be training programs in place so that boxers can generate a certain amount of work per round. And then they've got the mental focus to, under extreme pressure, do that round after round after round after round. This is where we don't have an advantage. Those guys like Crawford do it round after round after round. And not only that, they then do it with higher order skills and higher order decision making, higher order physicality than we can deliver as British boxing. That's the first thing to fix. Our boxers are not physically capable of performing at an elite level consistently. It's as simple as that. And until they are, we're not going to hold on to world championships. Now, I'd have to go back into the archives and see whether guys like Calzaghe and Clinton Woods were at that level. I imagine they were. I'm confident they were just because of the careers they had. Maybe the root of this was Adam Booth. Maybe when Adam came and said, it's not really about throwing loads of punches. It's just about throwing the right punches at the right time. And it never was because whenever someone put the work rate on an Adam Booth fighter, it all went a bit Pete Toll. It all went Pete Toll. Next time you watch, just in your head, just watch people fighting and go, is he setting a world-class pace? And if you want to know what a good benchmark is for a world-class pace, what Bivol did in the Canelo fight is a good start. What Baturbiev does is a good start. Um, I'd even put someone like Billy Joe Saunders in that mix. If you're not working as hard as they are, round after round after round, you're never going to compete with them because all they're doing is depleting your tank faster than you plan to. Let's, let, let, let's, let's use mathematics here. I know some of you are mathematicians or you studied maths you know, at our elite institutions. So let's just say it takes 4,800 units of work to be elite and to win as a middleweight at the elite level. And that's 400, that's 400 units of work per round, right? That's the fight pace fighter one's going to go in with 400 units of work every round if fighter two's only trained for 300 units of work over 12 rounds he's got 3600 units of work in him when's that going to deplete by the end of round nine so what are you fighting on in round 10 11 and 12 the answer is nothing and you're likely to get stopped that's what happened with marcus brown in the baturbia fight he just ran out of juice. People say Baturbia beat it out of him. Yes, he did. But he also just ran him into the ground with that pace. Here's an easy analogy. Most people, if not all people listening to this, and I include the boxers among them, couldn't run 400 meters at the pace that Mo Farah runs 5K. So Mo Farah does what, 13 laps of the track? And he does them in about 50-something seconds. Most people can't run 400 meters in 50-something seconds. And you've just got one lap to do it. In the same way as you couldn't run a mile at Mo Farah's marathon pace. That's what it is to be elite. 
It's not that they're more skillful. It's not that they're this. It's that they can just generate more work and higher quality work over a prolonged period of time in a way that most of us can't. They are ideally adapted to it and then the training takes it to another level. Boxers don't understand that. I still hear this nonsense about it's about skills. Skills pay the bills. It's about hit and don't get hit. No, it's about making your opponent work at a pace he's not comfortable with if you want to win. If you don't want to win, then yeah, it's all about skills and looking flashy and silly little shoulder rolls and whatever. This is where we get it wrong in British boxing. Ultimately, it's that we don't understand that it's a work rate sport and not a skill sport and we don't invest enough time in building the physical and mental resilience to do the work required to be elite. And I always look back at someone like James Tony, who we can all agree is elite. And if you notice, even when James was overweight and out of shape, look at how hard he made opponents work. Opponents who were ripped up and all of that. He made them work for every second of the round. And if he couldn't hit you, he'd lean on you. He'd bully you about, but he'd make you work. Because what that does is you're just there going, Jesus, it doesn't stop. That's what you start saying to yourself in the ring. Oh God, this doesn't stop. And then you're like, I don't have a solution. And after two or three rounds, you've exhausted all your options. And you're just like, I've just got to get through this and hope he tires. And if he doesn't tire, then it's a problem. But pace is everything. It's the foundation on which you get to express your skill and your talent, and your decision making. But currently, British coaches in the main, the older guys know how to get that, that pace and that energy out, you know, like I mentioned a few of them earlier. But these new guys don't because they've never been in that environment. A lot of these new coaches haven't been in that environment. A lot of the guys who are now retiring pros who want to get into coaching have never been in an environment where their output was elite. So what are they teaching? They're teaching mediocrity. But because a lot of these young guys were fans of the older guys, they just follow them blindly. They don't understand. And that's why you get what you do, where Chisora and Pula can still headline because those guys understand the amount of work it takes to operate at that level. And they do. And I look at that and I go... Why aren't these young guys listening? Why aren't they learning? Why aren't they taking instruction properly? Why aren't they finding trainers that can get them in position to be elite, to be elite athletes as well? And, it's, and part of that is, let me just pause and just go back to, do you remember when they did Superstars? Like they, re, they rebooted Superstars and Anthony Joshua did it. And Anthony Joshua ran the 100 in like 11.2. I think it was 11.26. Anthony Joshua at 16 and a half, 17 stone, blitzed the whole field and ran in 11,200 meters. That's, that's, that's elite for someone who's not a sprinter and that big and that heavy. That's an elite performance. The things that Anthony Joshua can do physically are elite. If he had a chin... If he had a, a chin like Derek does, I don't think he loses. Unfortunately, he doesn't, so it makes it interesting. But this is what I mean about just that, that ability to create elite athletes. 
we don't have boxing trainers in this country and no one's working with strength and conditioning guys that will get you in that position. So if you're not in that position, if your body's not elite, you're probably not going to be able to deliver elite level work rate. So what's the point of having all that other skill? It's, it's not a substitute. Yep. In terms of the skills, are we even teaching our guys the right things? Look how many of our boxers don't jab. Or they only jab to hurt the opponent. They don't jab to create openings. They don't jab to create havoc. They don't jab to scatter the defenses. They, they don't understand all of that. Because like we said earlier, no one's ever taught them what boxing is really about. No one's ever broken down the science and the philosophy of boxing for them. Coaches tell them what to do and they do it. And coaches do that deliberately. So they keep you ignorant so that you will always need them. That's how you get your 10%. And that's why our boxers are mediocre. A lot of the guys are mediocre. And people go, oh, who are you talking about? It's not about who I'm talking about. It's this. <laughs> Who's ready to dominate in their weight class in this country? I think the likeliest bet, if, you know, you can look, let's look past the obvious ones like Tyson Fury. The likeliest bet is probably Sonny Edwards. That's the likeliest bet to dominate his weight class is Sonny Edwards. What does Sonny Edwards have in the same work rate? Not a coincidence. And then once you get that work rate, you let your skills shine. It's just what it is. But a lot of you guys are there, you're doing your little Mayweather drills, or you're thinking it's making you slick and super skillful, but you can't generate the work rate. You can't even move your feet. You know, you see these guys with donkey steps or little butterfly steps. It's, it's just terrible. And you're almost like, and I can't even blame the, the pro coaches fully because a lot of this, this nonsense happened in the amateurs and they've just been allowed to carry on because a lot of trainers are fans of the people that they train. So what we essentially do is we build a boxing castle on top of sand. And every so often an American comes over, like when Crawford came to fight uh, Ricky Burns or when Kelbrook went over to fight Crawford or when Errol Spence came to Bramwell Lane. And we sit there and we wonder why these guys are just loads better than us. We wonder why these guys are almost like magicians compared to us. Do you remember when Cleverly got smoked by Kovalev? And he didn't have a response to that. Those sorts of things will always happen as long as we keep producing subpar performances. And we do that because we don't know how to build elite boxes. And someone will say, well, if you know so much, why don't you do it yourself? The simple answer is I don't have time. And none of you guys are earning the kind of purses to make it attractive for me. But I don't know. This is on the boxes, and I always preach ownership of your career. You know, whether you're Ellie Scottney, whether you're Tyson Fury, whether you're Richard Reactable, whoever you are, you've got to own your career. If you're Karen Smith, you've got to own your career because you're accountable for the performance you put in that ring. If it's wrong, then that's on you. But I don't see us fixing this. I think. Because the standard is so low across the country right now, I genuinely think we're going to get more of these nostalgia fights. And what will be bad is we'll keep digging them out. It'll be Ricky Hatton. And then five years from now, it'll be Amir Khan and he'll tell us his chin's miraculously fixed itself. 
And then, look, David Hay will come back. And here's the crazy thing. David Hay making a comeback, in the right comeback, would probably do bigger numbers than Richard's Boatsy did. That's the state of boxing right now. We'd rather take nostalgia over the future. Because we've seen a lot of these guys get to the top of that mountain and get knocked off pretty quick. Because they're not good enough to sustain what they've earned. Now, someone asked me, what's a quick solution to this? I've said it before, combine pro and amateur gyms. Like, as an interim step to just try and get standards up across the board, combine amateur and pro gyms. It's what the Americans do really well. It's what we don't do really well. We keep them separate, and there's this idea that they're completely different sports. But I think having some good pros, and I saw this in the Ingle gym, it drags the standard up. It doesn't pull it down. It drags the standard up. And all of a sudden, these kids are learning stuff that they weren't learning before. You really learn your craft. When you're around people who have to be craftsmen, you learn your craft. That's when they'll learn how to do the runs and how to get the most out of their performance and how to be strong. All of these things you have when you have people in your gym whose job it is to be elite. And we need to get to that point pretty quickly. Because our amateur game suffers for it, and our, ultimately our pro game suffers. But when a, when a dark place that's only going to get darker because the cupboard is increasingly bare, I promise you. Go back to one I always call the class of 2008, where you had all those guys like Rocky Fielding, George Groves, Tyson Fury. I'd even include the Olympians in there, DeGale, Price, even like... You know, Bradley Price or Bradley Saunders, I always forget. That whole generation, Matty Askin, uh, Frankie Gavin, Billy Joe Saunders. Think about all those names I just mentioned and how good they were. Now, they had vastly differing pro careers, naturally. But a lot of those guys showed you that they were elite. James held the belt for a long time. You know what I mean? Billy Joe... He was there or thereabouts. It's just a shame that the Canelo thing sort of tarnished his legacy. But we don't have anything like that right now. Who do we have from 2012? It's just Anthony Joshua. We'll put Josh Taylor in there as well. 2016, Okoli, Boatsy at a push. We're not producing elite level guys anymore. And it's a problem. And if you're a fan of boxing, this is something you should be talking about a lot more. And people need to start calling out the coaches who you can see are just making it up as they go along. Because it's just hurting the product and it's forcing us to watch recycled nonsense like Chisora, Pulev. We'll probably, get, we'll probably get the third fight. Don't rule it out. By the end of the year, they'll give us the third fight for that one. You know, we can also start warming ourselves up for White versus Hellenius too. Chisora might fight Hellenius again. All of this stuff is on the table. Like, he's definitely not going to be Deontay Wilder because he looks like he might be elite. But no, that's what I wanted to touch on. Like, I mean, just to, yeah, to, to get my frustrations in me off my chest because I yearn for the days when we can get super excited about someone again. You know, like a Talma and Ben Whitaker, two kids where you're like, if they can get everything in place and they can learn from the mistakes of the past, and they could be monsters and they could rule for a long time. But it's about whether they understand the things that I'm talking about here. In fact, they should be listening to this.
One thing I do want to just wrap up on is I think I have to apologise to a few people because like I didn't get to thank guys like Matt Skelton, Brooks Stretfield and Paul Alter, I don't think. Because a lot of people who behind the scenes have been helpful in pushing what I've been doing and they've offered support in the background. You know, without Brooke, I would never have made it into the Telegraph. Probably wouldn't have made it into the Boxing News either. So I'm grateful for that. All that sort of stuff, man. And so I just wanted to officially say thank you to those guys. Skelts always lifts my spirits, man, with his travails as as a cab driver in London. And thoroughly good guy. I'm surprised we haven't been for a beer yet. Man. We might have to do that before the end of the summer. So I'm just marking that now. So... With all that said, I just want to sign off now and say sorry it's been so long. I didn't think I'd go over an hour today, but yeah, there's just a lot that was in my head. And I just thought, let me get it out today. So you guys take care. <laughs>